Hi, this is Chris Campbell, and welcome to the Food Institute podcast. Today, we will be speaking with Thomas Gramillion, Director of Food Policy at the Consumer Federation of America, regarding the state of food safety in the U.S. during the pandemic. But first, if you are a first-time listener or you're becoming something of a regular, we ask that you share this episode on your social media platforms. It helps us expand our reach, and we really appreciate that when you do so. So with that said, I'll introduce Tom, and I'll start by asking how you're doing today. I'm doing well, Chris. Thanks for asking. I'm glad to hear that. So I think what we can start with is maybe could you provide a brief background about yourself and then also the Consumer Federation of America for our listeners who might be unacquainted with it? Sure. Yeah, um, yeah I'm a, a consumer advocate. I'm the director of food policy at the Consumer Federation of America, and I've uh, been a public interest advocate of uh, one form or another for almost 13 years now uh, since I, I graduated from, from law school. And um, I've been at, at CFA uh, for a little over five years, uh, and it's, it's a great organization. It was established in, in 1968 by national, state, and local pro-consumer groups to advocate the consumer interest before the U.S. Congress and, and federal regulatory agencies. And, and since then, it has broadened its mission to include advocacy on, on state issues and give assistance to consumer groups and give services directly to, to consumers. And, uh, you know, we see our, our role is, is helping to unify the consumer movement. And, and that's reflected in, in the diversity of our, our membership, which includes over uh, 250 nonprofit organizations. And, and those, you know, include national, state and local consumer advocacy groups, as, as you might imagine, but also state and local consumer protection agencies, uh, public power groups, credit unions, rural co electric cooperatives, housing cooperatives, cooperative extension offices, credit counseling agencies, social justice groups, trade unions. And uh, you know, one, one uh, particularly influential member that's kind of in a category of its own, uh, the Association for the Advancement of Retired People. So um, and with that kind of big tent, you know, our mission is to advance the consumer interest through research, education, and advocacy. And uh, in the food space, that means protecting consumers' access to a, to a safe, healthy, affordable, and stable food supply. And that obviously covers a really wide range of policy issues, and, and we really have our hands full. Um, but uh, one area in particular we've been focused on over the years is, is food safety. So I think that puts you in a particularly uh, insightful position to kind of give us some information regarding the realm of food safety and how it's changed with the COVID-19 pandemic. So could you give us a broad overview of what food safety is looking like in this country right now? Yeah. So, so uh, I, I'm, I don't know, you know exactly how food safety is doing because uh, we're kind of flying blind, but uh, I, know, I think there are some obvious ways that um, the pandemic is posing challenges to food safety. And I can think of at least four ways uh, I can go through. Um, first, you know, we've seen the, the pandemic uh, disrupt labor and, and supply lines. And so it's, it's not hard to imagine those translating into food safety problems, for example, for example, with, with a company uh, turning to a new supplier of an ingredient that it, it can't get anymore and not being able to conduct its, its normal due diligence or um, a company having to, to hire new workers and not being able to, to um, give them the, the same level of training because they're, you know, they have more turnover as a result of, of the pandemic um, disrupting the labor supply. Um, a second uh, related factor uh, is inspections, uh, both, both public and private. You know, early on, we, we um, 
learned from FDA that they would be scaling back inspections and um, private food safety auditors have also postponed a lot of, of in-person visits. And uh, if you've read uh, a few inspection and audit reports, uh, you know that it's pretty rare for a facility to have a complete, you know, clean bill of health. You know, they, there's almost invariably some problems that that are identified by those those audits and inspections. And so it, that raises the question: Are there food safety risks that would have been addressed pre-pandemic that are getting overlooked now? Um, uh, third factor: Lots of people are handling and preparing their own food for the first time, and and they may not know. The basics of, of safe food handling, you know, the, the cook, clean, separate, chill uh, that we all should have learned in, in grade school. And um, finally, um, our, our surveillance system uh, is uh, undergoing some, some challenges. Um, people are, are understandably reluctant to visit the doctor. And so it's not crazy to think that there may be foodborne illness outbreaks taking place now that would have been identified and traced back to a given food source before the pandemic. But because people are visiting the doctor less and they're um, spending less time in medical facilities, maybe not having a stool sample taken when they would have before, maybe they're not uh, being interviewed by an epidemiologist with the local public health department like they may have before because, you know, the local public health department has its hands full with COVID-19, uh, all of those things may contribute to it to a, an important uh, feedback loop uh, not being there to, to prevent foodborne illness. So, so a lot of, a lot of um, reasons for concern um, and unfortunately not, not a lot of um, data now to, to um, have a good idea of, of where we are. So with all of those challenges the food industry is facing in mind, what do you think the overall consumer perception of food safety is uh, during the current public health crisis? Well, I haven't seen any survey or polling data to suggest that a lot of consumers are, are concerned about things I've, I've mentioned, you know, the, the lack of inspections, uh, and maybe, maybe that will change uh, with the right sort of, uh, of outbreak. Hopefully that, that won't come to pass. Um, I have seen some some kind of worrisome survey data about um, consumers being afraid of, of coronavirus and food, and, and there seems to be a lot of conf confusion about out there about the risk of, of transmitting uh, the coronavirus uh, um, through fresh produce, for example. And uh, in particular, you know, a recently released survey had uh, 43 respondents saying that it's a good idea to wash produce with with soap or, or diluted bleach. And, and that's not a good idea. It's not, it's not a good idea to consume soap or, or bleach. Um, and so, so that's unfortunate that, you know, there's definitely some public education that, that still needs to happen. Switching over to the regulatory issues you were speaking about earlier, uh, we know that some regulatory agencies have given companies more leeway to meet certain food safety regulations in the wake of the pandemic. And what are some potential positives and negatives associated with this trend? Yeah, um, I think there, uh, there are positives and negatives in how the regulatory agencies have responded. Uh, early on, USDA uh, granted several line speed waivers to companies, and, and it's not clear if they were trying to you know, allow companies to produce more to maybe make up for shortfalls at other companies where uh, production was maybe inhibited by problems with the workforce. Uh, but we 
definitely did not like to, to see that. Didn't think it was a good idea. And um, fortunately, no, no waivers have been granted since then. Um, no one's arguing that, that we should just continue with the status quo, given how much uh, the pandemic has, has disrupted everyone's lives. And, and I think there are other examples, the FDA, uh, for example, giving egg producers uh, some more leeway, maybe reasonable responses to this. Uh, um, you know, FDA has given egg producers that were selling the, to the liquid egg market more leeway to sell shell eggs to consumers. Uh, and, and that helps to address a, a shortage of sell, shell eggs at, at the grocery store. And only time will tell if that has uh, you know, unforeseen uh, consequences, but it seems like a reasonable policy. Other policies uh, like uh, recent FDA guidance that allows food companies to, to substitute certain ingredients without making corresponding changes on the labeling, uh, they, they raise some concerns for us. Uh, that, that policy in particular uh, it doesn't require the companies to give any notice to, to FDA, and uh, that information could be you know, really important to someone with, with uh, an unconventional food allergy, for example, that um, you know, is, is uh, having a reaction to, to a product that, uh, an ingredient in a, in a product that isn't labeled. So going further into the regulatory agency issues, can you speak a bit more about FDA and USDA's memorandum of understanding that they signed in the wake of the pandemic and how that might affect the food safety landscape overall? Yeah, sure. Uh, my, my big concern with that memorandum of understanding is that it sends the wrong message to local public health officials. Um, the the uh, the MOU relates to an earlier executive order issued in April, which designates meat and poultry plants as critical infrastructure. Um, last month, FDA and USDA announced in, uh, that they had signed the, the memorandum of understanding to govern the potential use of USDA's authority under the Defense Production Act. Now, if you look at the Defense Production Act, it seems pretty unlikely that it would ever come into play. It really just gives uh, the government authority to order a private business to produce for a government contract over a private one. But it doesn't give the feds the power to override decisions by state and local public health officials, particularly decisions to, to close down a plant to, to protect the public health. So uh, in other words, the, you know, the government might put in an order with a meatpacking plant for, for steaks or ground beef or you know, uh, chicken, what have you, uh, that it would buy from that plant to maybe supply a federal hunger relief program or something. And it could forbid the plant from fulfilling private orders before it met that government order. Uh, or it could even, you know, conceivably, it might even go farther and act as a liaison between food companies that are looking for personal protective equipment for their workers and, and the personal protective equipment manufacturers and tell the, to the, the PPE manufacturers to prioritize orders that go towards protecting food workers. Uh, but again, ordering a meat or other food company to just stay open and keep up the status quo to avoid uh, disruption for consumers and you know, empty shelves in the grocery store, that's not covered by the act. That's not within the federal government's authority under, under the constitution really. So that makes it seem like, you know, all the hoopla around this is really just about putting pressure on food companies and public health officials to keep plants open. And, and 
that attitude, you know, that that posturing poses a danger to workers um, who might, you know, be at real risk in, in certain circumstances. And ultimately, that that poses a danger to consumers because you know, a safe workplace is a basic prerequisite for creating a, a culture of food safety. So do you see new regulations incoming that would mandate, say, six feet of physical distancing and any other kind of protective measures to protect employees against the coronavirus and maybe any other potential pandemic pathogens that show up in the future? No. Um, Back in April, um, OSHA issued guidance for uh, meat and poultry processing plants, and and that that guidance is voluntary. and it, you know, it certainly doesn't mandate six feet of physical distancing um, but between employees. Um, some congressional representatives have pushed for legislation that would establish a, a, a temporary mandatory standard to protect workers. And, and um, a labor union, the, the AFL-CIO, has uh, sued OSHA to put one into place. And, and so depending on those efforts, maybe, maybe we could see new rules, you know, ordered by court or uh, by Congress. But uh, OSHA, OSHA's leadership has made pretty clear that they favor a voluntary approach with evaluations on a, on a case-by-case basis. And in general, the administration's priority seems to be getting the plants back online. Uh, um, last week, USDA put out a press release celebrating that meat and poultry plants are back to operating at more than... 95% capacity. And you know, there's just no mention of the ongoing public health toll that, that that's taken, uh, which, you know, as of June 15th was uh, more than 31,000 uh, workers testing positive for COVID-19 and, and over 100 dying. So um, it, it's, yeah, not, not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, anticipate uh, new regulations coming out without some kind of external intervening event. In the recent weeks, we've seen meat packing price fixing issues emerge, and that includes both uh, red meat and also poultry. Could you explain CFA's stance on how to resolve this issue? Sure. It's, it's a tough issue. Um, you know, I, I think we've got to get at the extreme consolidation in the meat and poultry sector. And, and it, it is, it's pretty astounding. It, you know, the poultry processing sector, the four largest companies have 51% market share for pork, the four largest have 66%. For beef, it's 85%. Um, so that's, that, those are 2015 numbers, but I don't have any reason to think they have declined since then. And uh, that, that sort of concentration really poses a challenge for, for farmers and ranchers and workers and, and ultimately consumers. So we support a bill that was introduced in 2019 by Senators Cory Booker and John Tester uh, called the Food and Agribusiness Merger Moratorium and Antitrust Review Act. And it would kind of put the brakes on consolidation and set up review procedures for, for consolidation uh, across the, the food industry. And with respect to, to meat and poultry in particular, uh, I think enforcing the, the Packers and Stockyards Act, finalizing and implementing the, the uh, so-called GYPSA rule, uh, that, would, that would help farmers and ranchers. And uh, giving consumers access to country of origin labeling um, so that those who want to support American farmers and ranchers can do so, that that would help. Uh, Congress repealed a mandatory country of origin labeling uh, back in 2015 because of a, a World Trade Organization lawsuit that uh, Mexico and pa- Canada brought. But, you know, since we're renegotiating NAFTA, it seems like we, sh- we should be able to renegotiate the right to see 
where our, our beef and pork comes from. So I'd like to switch gears a bit from the coronavirus outbreak to another set of illnesses. And FDA reported on 16 individual foodborne illness outbreaks in 2019. Now we're nearly halfway through 2020 and FDA has only reported on two. So what do you think is the impetus for this decrease? Is it lowered reporting, closed food service outlets, or people afraid of going to the doctor? What do you think is fueling this uh, this decrease? Yeah, I, I, you named, you named uh, a lot of good ones there. I think all of the above. Um, yeah, I touched on some of this earlier, and I, you know, try not, I'll try not to repeat myself too much, but um, um, you know, it's, it's worth noting in particular that, that um, food service outlets play a kind of special role in foodborne illness outbreak investigations. Um, not necessarily because you know, food service workers uh, are you know, more likely to mishandle food and cause foodborne illness than, than a home chef. Um, although some people have that theory, I think it, you'll you'll also find people that argue uh, the other way based on on the available data. But um, because of the latency periods that are typical for for so many foodborne illnesses, uh, food service establishments that can can really provide crucial data in an epidemiological uh, investigation. So, so you think. Um, E. coli, you're talking about three or four days before symptoms appear. Uh, salmonella can be up to 10 days, maybe two to six weeks uh, before uh, a listeria monocytogenes infection uh, uh, manifests. So tracking the food culprit can be really difficult. You know, you've got to ask somebody what they've eaten over the last six weeks. Um, that's that's uh, quite a list. And it really simplifies an investigation a lot if you have multiple victims who report eating at a, at a particular venue. And that's how you get uh, a, a lot of these um, food vehicles identified. You know, it first starts with a food that was served at a, at a food service establishment that also you know, has, has uh, maybe more detailed records of, of the food they're serving. So that's an important feedback loop that has uh, uh, <laughs> been disrupted uh, by by this uh, uh, pandemic, but the other you know uh, the, the other factors you mentioned that, that I talked about before are definitely playing a role as well. So anecdotally, uh, here at the Food Institute, we seem to think that recalls for food are also on the decline this year. Do you agree with that? And do you think it's just related to the issues we were speaking about before? Or is there something else happening there as well? Yeah, I, I agree with that too. I think the data the data bears that out. Um, there there has you know just looking at the the trade publications it seems like uh, in, in FDA's uh, website uh, there have been a, a couple more in, in the last month or so but but um, I think some of the same factors may be at play uh, I, I would note that um, a lot of recalls happen before anyone actually gets sick and so to the extent that you're seeing fewer of those type of recalls you know that's not necessarily because people aren't going to the doctor but it could be a reflection of uh, fewer inspections or um, fewer fewer audits by um, you know uh, private uh, food safety auditors. Uh, so it's it's hard to know, but it definitely does seem like there's there's been a dip. So there are two other issues I'd like to speak to you about regarding food that are not entirely related to the coronavirus pandemic, and one of those is CBD. So I know that CFA has been rather outspoken on the issue of CBD in food. So could you give us a little background on CFA's stance there? I guess I would I'd say it's it is connected to the um, pandemic insofar as people selling CBD would like you to think that taking it will help you avoid 
getting COVID-19 or get over it, uh, <laughs> get, get through it more easily. But, but uh, uh, yeah, it's something we've been working on since last year when we, uh, we joined uh, the National Consumers League and the Community Anti-Drug Coalitions of America on, on an initiative called Consumers for, for Safe CBD. And that initiative is a, an education effort for consumers about potential dangers related to unregulated CBD products and um, support for, for FDA efforts to, to protect the public. Um, a lot of folks don't realize that, that CBD products are currently unregulated by FDA. And, and it really is uh, a wild west out there when you, when you start to look more closely at the products. Um, a lot of them are inaccurately labeled. They, they you know, misstate the amount of CBD that they contain. They have unsubstantiated claims from supporting the development of, of, of your fetus to uh, protecting against COVID-19. Um, they're, they're often contaminated with uh, you know, other, other chemicals, uh, and particularly uh, THC, tetrahydrocannabinols, uh, cannab cannabinols, excuse me. Um, that's, that's the uh, psychoactive component of marijuana that makes people feel high. And um, it, some people have actually, you know, as a result, of, have failed drug tests as a result of, of using CBD products. So um, there, there are concerns about CBD and, and still questions about, about its safety, particularly its, its interaction with other drugs and how it affects the liver. And, and we want to see CBD studied and understood better and, and you know, the, the right oversight of this market. So um, in, in addition to, to the initiative, we've, we've allied with uh, groups like Center for Science and the Public Interest to uh, oppose legislation in Congress that would fast track up approval of CBD. We don't want Congress deciding you know, which drugs should, should be on the market for consumers. We want FDA to be able to do its job. Um, CBD, FDA has approved CBD as uh, the active ingredient of a pharmaceutical drug called Epidiolex. And when FDA has made that kind of approval, uh, there's a specific process which involves notice and comment rulemaking um, that it has to go through before it allows the, the ingredient to be used in, in dietary supplements and in food. And so we want to protect the integrity of that process and, and let FDA do its job. So I know CFA has also been pretty outspoken regarding the administration's, administration's policy on gene edited food crops. Can you also fill us in a little bit more there and what CFA's concerns are? Yeah. Uh, you know, one of our, our mantras is that a safe food system is a transparent food system. And uh, recently, USDA finalized a rule that applies to how uh, gene edited crops are, are regulated. And uh, it really is lacking in, in transparency. So we've, we've uh, tried to shine a light on that. Speaking candidly, I think most people close to the issue of, of genetically engineered food would agree that the current regulatory framework for these products, which, which is divided up between FDA and USDA and EPA, um, that, that framework would benefit from some comprehensive reform. Uh, that said, USDA has historically played an important role as a gatekeeper for genetically engineered products. And the applications that developers have had to submit under the, under the old rules, they've let us know what's out there. And that, that changed with the rule that, issue, that, excuse me, that the USDA issued last month. 
uh, now uh, developers of, of these uh, genetically uh, engineered crops, gene-edited crops, they don't even have to notify the agency of the products that they believe qualify for an exemption under the new regulations. And so as a result, government regulators and the public won't have any idea what products are entering the market and whether those products you know, really actually qualified appropriately for the exemption from oversight. And you know, that's not what consumers want. Even consumers that are pretty comfor- comfortable with, with genetic engineering, we all want transparency. Ultimately, this isn't going to help even, even people that, that see genetic engineering as a way to you know, address a lot of tough problems from uh, the environment to, to food safety or um, uh, nutrition. What have you? This is this is you know really posing a, a risk of a of a backlash, and so um, it it wasn't just us that opposed this this rule. We also had um, biotech crop developers and food industry stakeholders uh, um, in a, a kind of unified opposition um, to no avail. But uh, you know we'll see we'll see how 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 uh, things play out in the future. So I think that about wraps it up for us this week on the Food Institute podcast. I want to thank Tom again for his time. Uh, Tom, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and your organization? Yes, uh, Consumer Federation of America's website is www.consumerfed.org. I'd also like to put in a plug for our virtual national food policy conference that will be taking place uh, July 28th and 29th. And uh, your listeners, you can, you can, go to our, our website, consumerfed.org, click on events and uh, register to attend the, the virtual National Food Policy Conference on July 28th and 29th. So we'll definitely share the relevant links in the description of this episode. So again, I'd like to thank Tom for his time today. Remember, if you're new to the Food Institute podcast, please follow, like, and share. If you'd like to learn more about the Food Institute, please take a look at the links in our description to learn more about us and what membership could do for you and your company. So until next time, this is Chris Campbell signing off. Thank you.